Don't worry, I'm cutting all that. No, you're not, because you're not. You're you're going to be like, I'm editing this. Uh, forget it. I'll just leave it in. Live from the Mundangerous Owlry in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 158 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're taking a break from our usual format to answer your mailbag questions. Hey, it's our third anniversary, okay? Cut us a little slack. And we also have a quick Gen Con recap, and we'll be telling you what we think about the new Eberron sourcebook, The Wayfinder's Guide by keith baker yeah we got a chance to hang out with him a bit at gen con so we'll fill you in on a little bit more than just what's actually in the book Uh, but first here's a quick word from uh mike shea who is also on don't split the podcast network hey it's mike shea of sly flourish and author of the lazy dungeon master and sly flourish's fantastic locations My show, The DM's Deep Dive on the Don't Split the Podcast Network, features a one-on-one discussion with guests like Sean Merwin, Enrique Bertrand, Teos Abadia, and more. Once a month, we dive deep into a single D&D topic and answer your burning DM questions. Watch us live on Twitch, on YouTube, or on our podcast on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Let's dive deep. Okay, so fair warning. If this is the first episode of TPT you've ever listened to, uh, try starting with episode 155 instead. That was like a while ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've been taking a break from our usual format for a little while, and we'll be back to it next week. But uh, for now, um, that would be a little more representative. Uh, also, because this is an anniversary episode, I guess last week was also technically an anniversary episode. Yeah, but we did work in that episode. Yeah, way too much work. Um, we are doing uh, our usual uh, mailbag protocol, which is drinking something that is not very good. Something heinous. Yes, something simply for your amusement. This time, we are drinking Bun Ratty Mead. However, mead is spelled M-E-A-D-E because it is not real mead. No, this is like fortified wine. Yeah, it's wine with uh, honey and herbs. Uh, imported from Ireland, uh, probably as a joke um, or a weapon of war. Yes. <laughs> um it tastes like uh it tastes like wine you put honey in. Yeah, it it really does. It's it, it kind of has a the taste of sweet tea a little bit. Yeah, a little. Uh, yeah, it's like a a bad riesling that you poured a little bit of tea into. Yeah. Well, it'll get the job done. Cheers. Cheers. So, quick recap of Gen Con. Um, as we have done uh, now two years in a row, we stayed in an Airbnb slightly off-site, hosted by Rich Howard of uh, the Whelmed podcast and uh, so many other projects, but most recently the Descent into Midnight RPG. Uh, in our, not just in our Airbnb, but in our one specific room, we also stayed with Jeff and John from System Mastery. Uh, Richard Kreutz Landry, uh, who's also working on Descent into Midnight, and Rohit from Gamer's Plane. So, if you can count correctly, that is six dudes with one bathroom. Yeah, and a special shout out to uh, Renee from the Fate and Fable Maidens for being the only roommate who showed up to our panel on Thursday morning. Yeah. Uh, the intro to DMing D&D, where she learned nothing, because she is good at that. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I, to be fair, I was trying not to show up to right. it. But well, you showed up late, so you yes. don't get any credit. <laughs> <laughs> on Saturday night, we uh, were on the Don't Split the Podcast Network panel and then went to the meetup with a bunch of people from our new network. James and Tricasso, Rudy Basso, the Venture Maidens, Dames and Dragons, who we met for the first time. Uh, they were cool. Three of them were there. I think there are four in total. Mm-hmm. So I think by volume, we've met the majority of them. Right. And we also met, uh, finally met Mike Shea. Yes, the uh, aforementioned Mike Shea. Right, a.k.a. Sly Flourish, um, whose, uh, whose book, Fantastic Locations, we are currently sponsoring as a giveaway uh, for our patrons, if you support us on Patreon before um, the end of August. I, I have to say, I was actually looking forward to being the oldest person on the podcast network, and it turns out, I believe Mike is like a few, a very few years older than me. Yeah, when I you think. get as old as y'all, a few years is like... It means a lot. Nothing. No, no, it means it means so much. You're like, wow. Three percent older than me. <laughs> Think of everything I accomplished. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was great to uh see everybody that we knew, meet everybody we didn't. Um it was a it was a fun panel and it was a great meetup. We also got to hang out with a bunch of the guys from Board Game Replay, who uh, are good friends with Jim, who's in our home game. Yeah, we played Root, which is an asymmetrical, uh, with the expansion, a six-player asymmetrical, sort of Euro, sort of Ameritrash kind of game. Um, you're, you're all different factions feuding over uh, one forest. Uh, yeah, because it's like, it takes place in the Hundred Acre Wood, essentially. Yeah. It's like birds versus uh, bunnies yeah. versus beavers. I got to play the militant birds. You got to play the... Uh, uh, a wandering badger who was stirring up trouble. Right. <laughs> uh, Jim played the uh, beavers who are like merchants. Um, there was a lizard folk. Cult. Uh, they were a cult. cult yes. Mm-hmm. And then um, what was the main one? The main. The cats. Cats. Mm-hmm. Right. They the were Marquis sort of, de Cat. Yeah. The Marquis de Cat had conquered the forest and uh, everyone was trying to take his crown. They succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then later on, we played Werewolf Legacy, which, um, yep, you heard that right. Werewolf, the classic camp game styled after um, perhaps you've heard it as Mafia. Um, also, the game, you know, the basis of like One Night Ultimate Werewolf, that party game has a Legacy Edition. I don't quite yet see the appeal of the Legacy Edition. Yeah, I mean, it could have gone cool places, but um, at least in the first chapter, it was like, Okay, cool. We're playing Werewolf. This is familiar. Uh, I don't want to play Werewolf that much more. But um, I guess I would be curious to hear where it went. I don't know that I would stick along for the ride if I if I could just kind of skip to the good part. Yeah, I agree. So Gen Con was fun. Um, you know, five days of uh, distinctly few vegetables to yeah. eat. <laughs> it's five days of bad food and not enough sleep and too much liquor. I went to a Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> if you know anything about me, that says a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, but we got to play cool games. Uh, we also got to play Test Descended in Midnight. Uh, played Shadow of the Demon Lord. So, um, you know, got got some games to the table as well as met a lot of uh, great people. Um, caught up with a lot of our listeners. Um, so that was fantastic. Thank you. I can't um, believe we have listeners. I know. And thank you to each and every one of you who recognized us or went out of your way to find us and say hello. I think um, it was the weirdest thing when, like, someone would yell our names and they weren't angry. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're just, like, you know, instinctively duck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? What? It wasn't me. All right, so 
Let's get into our mailbag. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go uh, Twitter questions first and then email questions. Also, we're going in uh, order in which you sent them in. So since we are also drinking, that means that if you sent your questions in earlier, you are getting a more, more coherent response. Correct. So let that be a lesson <laughs> to all of you when we ask for questions next time. All right. This first one is from Jeff at least please. What's the best way to set a gritty, like, edge of the Empire campaign tone during setting zero for a group that usually plays pretty slapstick or casual? As a GM, I struggle to just get characters done in session zero, let alone successfully set the tone and get player buy-in. Oh yeah, this is easy. So here's what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to have them help define a bunch of stuff about an important NPC, start and media race, and kill that NPC. That is 100% correct. So... Get them committed to somebody and then kill that somebody. And guess what? They'll get the tone. Now, if you don't necessarily want to kill someone, just, you know, remove or injure something that they value. Maybe they built a town. You know, it depends on like what kind of game you're playing, like destroy their favorite ship, you know? Yeah, spend a lot of time building your ship and then uh, spend the first session watching it explode. Okay, maybe spend a lot of time describing the ship. Maybe don't get into the nitty gritty of exactly like how many placement points are going where before you blow it up. (laughs) all right next question this is from jason vickery uh at mercutio 53 on twitter what is the most out there concept for the character creation forge that didn't make the podcast okay number one uh jason came to the dspm panel on saturday number two uh, he gave us a shout out in the security line at the airport correct okay this is commitment which turned out there were a bunch of bewildered people around us then (laughs) yes Uh, also he has a pretty sick uh blue lantern tattoo which i really like okay to answer the question uh, we have never actually rejected an idea. So like, you're not actually answering the question, Shane. Yeah, I mean, we've never... If we have wanted something, we have figured out a way to make it work. That's not a challenge, Yeah, listeners. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> we, right. There's basically two ways that we come up with character creation forge ideas. One is we have a particular like mechanic or class combo that we want to see, and then we struggle to come up with a pithy name for it. That can be difficult. Um, the other is we have a character or a name or a concept that we need to create, and then we go hunt out the classes and mechanics that we need to bring that to life. Yeah, so I think the only things that we haven't actually built yet that we considered were things that we haven't quite figured out how to do yet. But, you know, there are a few ideas that are sort of sitting on the shelf waiting for a new source book. I think. And I think there were a couple where we were like, oh, man, if we just waited a, a year for Aquaman, it would have been much, much easier. Yeah. Mm. Um, there are two. The two most difficult builds, though, were the ones that required us to hunt through all of the books and all of the mechanics in order to maximize um, something. Yeah, we were looking for, like, the highest. Right. So the Flash in episode 73 had to have stupidly high speed. And the one-hit wonder in episode 133 had to have stupidly high damage. Um, and so that meant we, we had to do math. Yeah. And then also like lay out what order you needed to take your actions and on what turns in order to make things happen in the right way. It was like a, you know, a one character combo. All right. Next question is from at Blake Ryan, Batman, uh, two parter. You get given one of the other world of darkness IPs. Which one would you want? And what will you do with it? Shane? Um, you can't say tear it up. Yeah, I know. That's kind of cheating, You right? could say, like, tear it up. <laughs> I think I take Hunter and make it a gumshoe game. 
Oh, look at you. You're just going to play Knights Black Agents again. No, 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 no. But yes. <laughs> How about you? Um, I would take uh, Mage the Ascension and make it into Harry Potter. Okay. Um, and then his second question. If you were playing characters based on each other, oh, God. what race and class would you build? I think Shane is a Goliath bard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I accept. I'm a little disappointed you didn't give me any ranger after once again proving an impeccable sense of direction at Gen Con. Uh, you got lost multiple times. That's not even close to being true. <laughs> at least one time, which, you know, feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah, one time where uh, we took like one early turn and still got there. Ah, you admit it. <laughs> A real ranger wouldn't get lost, but also would never admit it. Um, if I were building you, I would take... I mean, I'm not sure what race to pick, but it would definitely be transmuter. Oh, um, interesting. Because that is definitely, like, the most prone to uh, world-breaking. Right, abuse. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And and nothing encapsulates you more than the intent to break something beautiful. Oh, very, very true. I thought you would have picked Warforged because, of course, I am dead inside. Well... I believe Warforged have souls. Oh, look at you. You've am, come around. I am not Bran Talandra. <laughs> but he also believed Warforged have souls. Only when presented with irrefutable evidence. No. The Church of the Silver Flame recently got evidence, or I mean recently published canon. <laughs> it's not my fault they didn't have souls until 17 years ago. Look, we ha we actually have confirmation, word of God, straight from, from Keith, Keith Baker's Baker. mouth. Right. Yep. He said, Warforged have souls. They have souls. So They may be pieces of like sloughed off old souls. Yeah. They might not be whole souls. But <laughs> maybe. Maybe. But they're souls. Yes. All right. Next question is from Matt Perotti. Oh, um, no. We skip it. Uh, Matt asks, what's the monstrous species that you want to have PC rules the most? I have always liked, I've never gotten a chance to play, but I've always liked the concept of Council of Worms, which was everyone plays a dragon. And like, that's the level of the game that you're playing. You're, you're sort of like, I think, ruling dragon domains, but like you are a dragon. And I would love to have stats for that. That would, of course, be very difficult to actually like apply to 5e as it is. But I don't know. I guess maybe you just sort of start at 20th level and then build on dragon stats from there as you age. But yeah, I would love some sort of module that does that. The correct answer is vampire. Stop. We're done with vampires. No more vampires. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone wants them. Don't even lie. I mean, they will show up. They were in fourth edition uh, 1.5 times. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they were in 3.5. I don't know if at all, but everyone still tried to get bitten. Yep. All right. That's the Twitter questions. Thank God. Next up, questions via email. Oh, Lord, there are so many of them. First one, Jeremiah. A uh, few questions here. Number one, do you have any D&D drinking games? No, we drink heavily while playing D&D, but we don't actually tie our drinking to any of our dice rolls. Uh, except if somebody dies, then that person always pours a drink. Yes, there is a, a little bit of pouring one out, I suppose. Our drinking game is Dungeons & Dragons. All right, uh, his next question. What are your favorite non-pencil and paper slash non-RPG games? I think he means board games. I guess he could mean video games, right? I suppose that's true. I mean, you play a lot of those. Uh, I play a lot of Overwatch. I do not play a lot of video games. <laughs> I play a lot of one video game. I also uh, am pretty excited about Warhammer 40k Kill Team because that has a, it's like the operator version of 40k, which has like low model count, so I can actually afford it. 
Let's see. I like um, Bananagrams, but I really, really, really hate Scrabble. Despise Scrabble. How do you feel about Boggle? Uh, and no. how do you feel about non-Milton Bradley games? Mm, I'd play Upwards. Okay. I, would, I would do that. I wouldn't enjoy it, but I would do that. Um, anything with a popomatic bubble, I enjoy. That's always fun. Uh, I don't like Jenga, but I like Dread games. But uh, those are RPG games, so I guess I don't count. Oh, and I and I do play Planescape Torment on my phone. I guess that's an RPG, though, isn't it? It is. Ugh, okay, yeah. I got. I don't have much. Check out Splendor, though. Splendor is one of the easiest like engine-building games to get to the table. Um, it is good for gamers and non-gamers alike. Um, it has a lot of depth, a lot of replayability. Oh, Twister. I really like Twister. Okay. Yeah, that was a great one. All right, last question. Laser tag? Last question from Jeremiah. Do you share about D&D in the workplace or other areas of life? Do you tell people in the workplace about your hobby or is mom the word? Shane? Oh, yeah. I told everybody at work where I was going. Really? Con. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I got a little bit of made fun of and then a little of polite ribbing and then a little of, huh, that's a thing. Interesting. Never right. would have pegged you for the type. Yeah. A lot of polite curiosity. Although we did get stopped in the mall in Indiana by a random dude who was like, uh, what are you here for? What's this Gen Con? You don't seem like nerds. Yeah. It was... Um, an exhausting conversation yeah i, I gave want... him a lapel pin and then i wanted it back right i was like please don't wrap us <laughs> how about you um i used to not i used to keep it extraordinarily extraordinarily quiet and then we started this podcast and then my wife was like tell people about it and i was like oh god no and she's like well i'm gonna tell people about it and i was like please stop and then like i guess it was fine um i'm a journalist and my first actual D related story comes out uh, next week i'll let you guys know Okay, Nate B, at Infinite Brooms, although he sent this via email, says, I know you've talked about character death and defeating the players, but could you say a little more about how to create challenges in your own games? In all your recaps, I can't recall any character deaths, but the combat sound really difficult. As a fairly new DM, I'm still trying to figure out how to get the thrill without the kill. So to be fair, the combats in Dynasty Unwarranted are very difficult because... Um, Dark Heresy is very difficult, and it accounts for that by giving you fate points to burn. Um, so I have killed multiple characters. Uh, there is not a single character left at the table who has um, their full fate points remaining. Actually, Trank does. Well, congratulations, <laughs> Trank. <laughs> guess, guess what's happening next guess session. Guess who's about to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, I've, I've kept my head down the entire time, and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut right now. <laughs> Yeah, so there have actually probably been about 14 deaths in uh, in Dynasty Unwarranted. Yeah, altogether. Um, but mm-hmm. through some miracle, uh, every character has come through. Like, through the Emperor's grace, fate has woven to keep them uh, in the story. Right. We should probably make it more clear that, like, someone burned a fate point and, like, a limited finite resource that you can never get back yeah and and spoiler alert like a death is coming imminently like within um like a few episodes like someone like, is gonna die like it happened like, and we're gonna tell you about it in a few episodes yeah 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 um in, in terms of like the 5e in terms of morning glory uh dungeons and dragons like fifth edition is the same as previous editions of D, wherein if you don't die within the first like seven to eight levels it's very hard to stay dead um, and since I knew that, so like rather than having to contrive like ways that the cleric was just going to raise somebody and like not bother, I wasn't going to bother them for eight hours while they did it or whatever, they had cube, right? Which sort of actually added a bit of um, danger 
to potentially avoiding death. I actually wanted there to potentially be some sort of negative consequence. I think I've talked before about how if uh, I had to, to run it again, I would make uh, the consequences, I think, um, definite. Like something definitely negative would happen uh, and and permanent. Uh, probably not like loss of limb or, you know, scarring or something. But, you know, maybe loss of a, a stat point or something along those lines. Um, so we didn't answer the question at all. <laughs> I think what's important to remember is that it is not fear of death typically that keeps characters motivated. That's it's, that's not what's like scary or thrilling or interesting. It's fear of failure. Right. That's the key. Um, so characters will die to avoid failing, but they will not enjoy dying for no reason. Exactly. So you need to provide them with something worth dying for. It. <laughs> um, the key to just adding challenge, though, to D&D is to avoid the five-minute workday. Um, so just make sure that you're throwing multiple encounters at your players without them getting a rest. And, uh, and when they go into difficult fights without their full resources and they can't just use their high-level slots to neutralize things, uh, they'll have a challenge. Yeah, put something they find dear in danger. Actually, we you know mentioned this in a previous question. Like You don't have to destroy something that they love, but jeopardize something that they love. That'll be even worse and more interesting dramatically than, you know, reducing them to zero hit points. All right. So the next question is from Darren, and it is a three-parter. So first, in the Eberron 5e game I'm running, the PCs are about to gain access to fifth level spells. What can I do to prepare myself for this jump in their power level? So fifth level, and especially sixth and seventh level, but I think fifth level is where you really start to get long range transportation spells. And you know what? Great. Let them use them. Like, um, I think uh, Tree Stride or, or, yeah, Tree Stride is level five, which, you know, lets you transport, I think, like 1,000 feet per round. Your ranger can just disappear and, like, leave the combat. Um, You get teleportation circle. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's hard to keep these characters out of places that you don't want them to get into. That's fine, you know? (laughs) Like, getting to the other side of the lock was just the first part of the challenge it might actually be worse once they actually get there yeah in terms of preparing for it um it's a good idea to read the class guides um if you just search like 5e and wizard guide um you'll find forum posts that kind of walk through all the options um that actually try and rate the spells it's a good idea to pay attention to like the better spells on that list just to be aware of what your players are likely to have at their disposal um but Yeah, yeah they'll have a lot more aoe and uh, and they'll have world changing spells like creation um and you know things that can just troubleshoot immediately yeah even the most railroady game becomes more sandboxy but remember that you still have a plot so if your players do want to like use these abilities and sort of wander off in random directions okay they can do that the plot isn't going anywhere else you know, like the things that they need to prevent or the things that they need to make sure occur or the people they need to save are still in the same locations and are, are still going through the same challenges. Uh, second part, does your group regularly use any 5e house rules? First, every group uses uh, 5e house rules. They just may not know that they're doing it because not everyone is using all the rules as written. We did use flanking in Morning Glory as well as in our Dark Sun game. I probably would not do that again. No, there are too many ways to get that easily is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also give a free feat at first level. I wouldn't do that outside an Eberron game. Um, it was basically a way for me to allow people to choose dragon marks. 
um, without having to develop an entire system, which we now have in Wayfinder's Guide, and we'll talk about a bit later. Right. All right, last question. Are either of you playing in any play-by-post games at the moment? No, although I wish I was. I am. Really? I'm in a 5e play-by-post game hosted by Matt Perotti, actually. And I am playing a level one uh, forge cleric. Um, my concept is that I was a high-ranking soldier. I was the standard bearer to the general. I retired. Um, I went home and found faith and um, worked to forge, um, refusing to make weapons. And then I was called back into duty um, by my country to serve in a mercenary company as the military's liaison. Matt, I will pay you one cheeseburger if you kill this character. This character is great. Don't kill my Logan character. Two cheeseburgers of your choice. All right, next question. This comes from Cat from Dames and Dragons. How does a DM help a player understand the mechanics of their class, race, etc. during play when they themselves may not fully understand the mechanics of that class? Uh, I do have some bad news for you, Cat. Um... One of you needs to fully understand the mechanics of your class or race, etc. If it is not the player, if the player is a casual or doesn't really know what's going on it's their first time, it needs to be the GM. If the GM doesn't know, then you need to have an experienced player who you trust not to screw things up. Yeah, one of the easiest things to do, though, is to put their abilities on cards um, with the full text. That will help. Um, but also, if you create them for them, add a little summary text for like what the overall description of what the ability is and then kind of include the full text as well uh for those of you uh, the dames aren't doing this but uh for those of you who have really wanted to like jump in feet first and like yay we're gonna play dungeons and dragons and you're starting at you know higher levels um starting at level three is probably fine but if you're starting at like level five or ten or something like that there's an excellent chance that nobody has any idea what's going on with their characters i highly highly recommend working your way up through the levels because that gives you a, a chance to understand how to use all of your abilities and like what your new abilities are each time you get them. You have sessions where you're actually using them rather than sort of having, you know, 15 of them dumped in your lap all at once. All right, next question. This one comes from Thomas. This is my first time playing or DMing 5e. I'm excited to return to D&D and to the world of Eberron. We came out of our session zero with my party jazzed about playing a crew of sailors and pirates. Most of the party has tool proficiencies in vehicles water, and one player has proficiency with vehicles air from his storm dragon mark. What advice do you have for playing with ships and airships? What are the ways you could have a party use their sailing abilities in or out of combat? Any thoughts on cool things to do on a ship other than navigation tool and vi- and vehicle checks? Uh, so Shane, you spent, what, like two years trying to get together a Pirates game? Uh-huh. How'd that go? It ended up being Rogue Trader. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see first uh you ran it in 5e yeah 5e no, uh, yes first in yeah, 5e that was the first one then in, in feng shui mm-hmm. uh and then ultimately just rogue trader any lessons you have from those games that didn't make it yeah so specifically in D the best source book still even in fifth edition for ship rules is storm rack i 100 percent agree and i hate agreeing with you yeah, that's an old third edition supplement. Um, it, I believe, is available on DMs Guild um, in PDF if you can't track it down physically, but I don't think it's a particularly hard book to find. Um, anyway, it includes, you know, difficulty classes and all that stuff for different activities, gives you ideas for, like, what ships are and what they can do and, like, how much cargo and all of that sort of, like, mechanical crunch that you might want. So I would recommend picking that book up. Um, 
I prefer to not really use those skill checks unless they were um, under some sort of threat of failure. So I use like sort of a skill challenge type system to um, simulate like a storm or a chase. Um, that's how I used it. But otherwise, I think we will talk about this more in depth, um, not just in D&D, but in other systems next week. Maybe. Uh, Stormrack also has uh, the Darfelin, which are the uh, killer whale people. The whale people. Uh, they have the Hadozi. Yeah. Flying which are, monkeys. Yeah, the monkey people, <laughs> uh, which which are awesome, but kind of suck because they're the only one in the in the whole book that don't have a swim speed, so it's really hard to fight underwater. Yeah, but they can glide. I know, I know. I mean, they're cool. They just and you just grab them and uh, throw them in the water. Yeah. Um. It also Stormrack includes a bunch of rules for adventuring underwater, which is dope. Um. And it includes the Aventi is the other class or the other big race. Yeah, you made there. them OP in five E. That's yeah. why we were all Aventi. Everyone was Aventi <laughs> or Dufrelin, <laughs> and you guys massacred Sahagan. Oh, but yeah, they deserve it. Right. They're shark people. Well, no, they're shark things. They're not people. They're not people. All right. Yeah, okay. We'll we'll get more into this next week. I have things to say about skill checks on ships. Okay, next question. This is from Batman slash Lizard Man. He says it's a long story. First, thinking about running an Emberon game where the PCs play as soldiers, or they were soldiers two years before the morning, and they witness it directly, and then fast forward two years to the actual game. Uh, any advice that you guys can give me? Uh, I think this is essentially a normal Eberron game in that, like, Everyone who's alive now, for the most part, uh, will have been alive during the morning because the morning only happened two years ago. Right. Everyone was around. Like the people could see the light of the morning a thousand miles away from Seer, which is I think that encompasses like a third of the entire continent. Everyone knows exactly where they were um, when the morning happened, and so like you have a long, detailed story. And actually, one of the things that I like in Wayfinder's Guide is it, it does try to help you pull out, you know, who were you before the morning and like how has that changed you? It should very much change these people if they like witnessed it directly. Yeah. And in terms of actually at the table, um, I like the idea of starting with sort of a, a narrated montage. Um, so let each player kind of describe the five minutes leading up to them witnessing the, the day of morning and then sort of fast forward to you meet in a tavern or whatever the starting scenario yeah, is. Yeah, or you're still going to spin together or whatever. Right. But yeah, I, I like this idea of... Like, what uh, were you doing on the morning of 9-11, right? Like, everyone has that story. So tell that story for the day of morning. Right, and I would take the time. Like, your session zero, I think the biggest chunk of it should, like, aside from character creation, should actually be, like, tell the normal, maybe even, like, relatively boring story of, like, what your life has been as a soldier in the last war. Like this is a, a 90 year war, right? Um, you're really tired of it. Maybe you like curse this and just wish anything would happen. So this war would be over. Um, you know, like were you waking up in the morning and eating terrible rations? Uh, did you get along with each other? Like um, who did you like or not like in your unit and who were you going to go back to? And then all of a sudden, all of that, that entire story you've just put together changes and changes completely immediately uh that can be the thing that like they've lost the normalcy of life all right next question you guys talk about shane's character brand and the wacky warlock one of your friends played that would be lou Lou. uh played by Susie. thoughts Uh, about their characters yeah they're both terrible they're (laughs) hang on the worst there's more no no i'm not (laughs) okay second part 
would you ever have one of the people you play with regularly on the podcast to talk about whatever? Okay, okay. First, so, first part. First second part. part's first. No, uh, because we only have two microphones. Next. No, we totally would. We've talked about having like... Um, it's been three years, man. It's not happening. I'm saying we've <laughs> talked about, oh, okay. for example, like uh, having Steph on to talk about um, like being a first-time GM. Right. Um, or having uh, Angelo on to talk about time travel. But yeah, we are lacking a microphone. So hey, hey, if you're still listening, because you say you listen, other people in our group, uh, buy a microphone, you can come on the show. There you go. First part, uh, Brand and Lou specifically are the two characters who helped define the direction of the story specifically because they involve things that I wasn't particularly interested in talking about as a GM. Uh, Susie wanted to play a warlock who was influenced by the Delkir. I was not interested in including aberrations. I had a player who wanted to be influenced by aberrations. Guess what? They're going in the game. Uh, Shane wanted to be an inquisitor from Thrain who's dedicated to the Silver Flame. Uh, we weren't dealing with Thrain up until that point. Really, like, I only really started tying it in very specifically once you came on board. Right. And so here we go. Obviously, there were other characters who, like, made the story go in a particular direction. You know, as soon as Jim was like, hey, I'm going to play someone whose, like, entire family was killed in the morning. Like, I was like, oh, well, that definitely aligns with what I was looking for anyway. And, you know, when Steph was like, hey, um, you know, demons killed my family. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, they did. Oh, yeah, uh uh-huh. I know. (laughs) Right. Even if they, even if you didn't say that, I was going to happen. Yeah, they are also two characters who had a like, I think, outsized impact on the world of Eberron, like in our fiction. Um, you know, not not counting um, the fiend slaying specifically, like killing a Lord of Dust, right? That um, that Emery did, um, the Bard. Um, you know, slaying a Dalkir, um, and Belashira specifically is like. A pretty big change to the world of Eberron. Kind of big. Um, and then likewise, like, um, not that Brand was responsible for killing the Silver Flame himself, but, like, Brand also really reshaped, like, the Church of the Silver Flame kind of in his image um, and and basically became a heretic himself in order to do that before ascending to Grand Inquisitor. So, like, Thrain was no longer the same. Don't worry, it's going to be the same again. You didn't have any kind of lasting impact. Like That's a J- lie. Jayla's like huddled over the hole where the flame used to be with like flint and tinder, and like she's she's going to get it. She's going to get it. She'll figure it out. Yeah, great. Jayla's the best amongst all of us, <laughs> as always. Um, but you know, like we all work together to like bring back Seer <laughs> and like those types of things, right? Um, a little worse for wear. I mean, you know, you can probably buff out the the rough spots, right? Right. Oh, that's. That, Mo- that May bar right there, uh, that'll buff out. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be fine. You really should have uh, gotten the undercoating. All right. Next question is from Sean. First, do you spec the character creation forge off the PHB experience recommendations or assume milestone levering, leveling for these builds? Um, I'll go ahead and answer that. Uh, we don't pay attention to that at all. In any way. We build a level 20 build for the most part. Right. Um I'm asking because most of the published 5e adventures, at least the early ones, seem to be stopping at early to mid-range levels and might not make it to the end of the build. That's very true, which is why we try to point out um, at what point you can feel like you're actually playing this build. And we really try to shoot for before, like, 6th or 7th level. I mean, ideally, a lot of these builds you can can have a sort of online at level 2 or 3. Yep. Um, Then Sean continues... 
Would you ever consider doing a level 10 PC for the Character Creation Forge? Something that hits on all points to meet its thematic requirements that is accessible to those who might be in a slower level grind. Sean, Sean, buddy, buddy, Sean. We have. The Mini Mage was only 10 levels. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a mini build. And then we were like, eh, we're done. Uh, we did do the, um, what, the Silver Snakes? Was that it? Yep, the Silver Snakes. I think we're level three or yeah, five they were level three and that was uh, episode 15 we built two level three characters for um a one-shot game was that at a catacomb yes it was yeah hold on sean continues uh maybe if you know you have a hard story end at a certain level in a game i enjoy the mechanical theory craft of the regular builds but i think it'd be a f- be fun to explore build efficiency in the early game i totally agree with that um but i think what usually happens is we're like you know, at the end, when we're usually like, okay, what level order do you take? We're like, uh, get to level five in one first. Right. Uh, maybe you splash one level of something else so that you, you know, really feel like you're you're a multi-class. But the way that 5e is set up, you, you really need to hit those milestones or get a particular ASI or a feat. Um, and then you really start to sort of blossom in terms of multi-class abilities between like five and 12. All right. We got a bunch of questions from Josh Perry who is pretty awesome and lives in London. We were going to mail him a shirt, but then I just went to London and then mailed it there. (laughs) (laughs) What influenced your decision to join DSPN? Uh, We like those people and we like their shows. Yep. Best and worst bits of Gen Con. Uh, Shane was the worst bit of Gen Con. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll buy that. (laughs) What was the best? Uh, The best part of Gen Con is the people. Absolutely. Um, It was really cool to meet people who we have heard of but never actually met in person, sometimes sleeping uh, next to them and hearing exactly how loud and or quiet they are at night. Uh, The worst bit of Gen Con is the dealer hall. Um, It is too crowded. There is too much stuff there. It is impossible to find what you're looking for. And uh, if you don't come armed with lots and lots and lots and lots of dollars, you'll have this terrible fear of missing out. Also true. And there's so many magic cards there. And I'm just like, I want, but no, I can't look. I can't ever look. All right. If you could create a piece of TPT merch, what would you make? An apparatus of Qualish. <laughs> a real, actual, I would call um, how would Elon that be, Musk. How would that be TPT merch? I would call Elon Musk and I'd have him make oh, uh, a, a branded TPT apparatus of Qualish. Like a little submarine, but I want crab claws and levers and I want it to be for somehow made out of wood. I would like to see plush toys of you and I. Oh my god, that would be amazing. Could they be voodoo dolls? God, no. They would end up as voodoo dolls. All right, next question. If you had to play a campaign in Forgotten Realms, what would you base it around? Uh, That's easy for me. Leaving. (laughs) Oh god, I got stuck here from Eberron. How do I get home? (laughs) Uh, Let me see, let me see. Um, I would play it during the time of troubles when all the gods are walking around on like the land and then i would make it about murdering them i would like to kill garl glitter gold that sounds awesome but (laughs) elminster's not allowed he can't be there he can't be there all right shane this next one is for you um snog marry or kill I, i think this should be wed bed behead no, that's that's very old school. I saw that on Twitter. I like it. Okay. Gilliman, Sanguinius, or Lionel Johnson? Who the hell are these people? Explain to our, our listeners. Uh, these are three Primarchs mm-hmm. from Warhammer 40K. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rabut, Gilliman, 
He's uh, what? The French guy? The uh, Primarch of the Ultramarines, the Smurfs. Oh, right. Sanguinius. Right. What about, uh, wait, what about, um, Catus Acarius? Is he, is he's an Ultramarine, right? Wait, who? Catus Acarius. <laughs> <laughs> Could you just do that one more time? What? What? Well, you want me to say, Catus Acarius? <laughs> I am Catus Acarius. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sanguinius is the Primarch of the Blood Angels. And Lion L. Johnson is the Primarch of the Dark Angels. Oh, I get it. Okay, you're going to have to pick because I don't know that much about Primarchs. Um, okay, so kill Gilliman, obviously. Obviously. Because he's a Smurf. Um, I are th- any of these, uh, what are they called? Eternals or whatever who can't die? Immortals? Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, though Gilliman was recently brought back to life or like recently unfrozen from stasis by Belisarius Call and brought to uh save the imperium and it's yeah. our serious call <laughs> um so kill gilliman um i guess bad sanguinius because like because yeah well because he is the progenitor of the red thirst which means you know eventually like all blood angels will go crazy with bloodlust and just murder everything around them and they have to join the death company um meanwhile so you want to have a red wedding night yeah not no i don't <laughs> i i would like to wed lionel johnson um who has a terrible secret but then again most marriages are founded on lies, so it would work out just normal. Your wife is literally in the next room. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Most marriages. <laughs> She's probably has headphones in. All right. Uh, next question. What's been the hardest part on the road to creating a successful RPG podcast? Oh, this is easy. Shane, that's my answer. Oh, okay. I was going to say um, the definition of success, we keep having to lower it. Uh, ooh, I like it. I like it. Um, Time. Time. There's uh, not enough time to do all the cool stuff we would like to do. Yes. Yes. All right. This one comes from Shara. How do you handle rules lawyers at the table? I mostly play D&D Adventures League, and there are a large number of rules lawyers out there. I've been guilty of it myself, who argue every point against both the DM and other players at the table to keep the DM in check. Sometimes bending some of the rules creates a more immersive story, and we need to just let it happen. But short of saying that at the start of a session, how do you handle it in game? So I have played Adventures League with Shara, so full disclosure. You just tell her to stop it. Stop being a rules lawyer. Well, I don't remember her being a rules lawyer. Um, but the way that I deal with rules lawyers is to deputize them to my cause. So if I have a question about a rule, I ask the rules lawyer at the table, hey, what are the rules for falling damage? And I let them scurry off and find them and then recite them back to me while I move on with the game. Yes, uh, absolutely like make them feel useful that's all they really want like right. if you have set a dc for jumping over a pit and they say actually if you have a 10 foot running start you can clear a number of feet equal to your strength score and also your high jump is equal to your strength modifier plus three they are technically correct um just be like oh great okay you just do that then don't you because your strength's high enough yeah cool um but also, even in Adventurer's League, you can say things like, yes, that is the rule. That is correct. I'm going by that rule. However, there are other things in play that you do not know about because your character does not know about them. I'm factoring them in. Let's move on. Roll it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you may be correct, but it would be faster to do it my way. And I don't think it will change the outcome. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Smack him in the mouth, Char. No, I, I mean, it's always better to recruit them to your side. So try and get use out of the rules lawyers. Hey, can you look that up? Hey, how does this work? 
hey, does that seem like a reasonable judgment? Um, but just remember, you rule zero. You have the final say. Yeah, if they're still unhappy about that, then they're not going to be happy about anything. They're looking for a problem, and right. it's not what you were doing. Exactly. That is no longer a problem with a uh, player at the table. That is a problem above the table. All right, so next question from Tony. Hey, guys, what's your impression of the 5B Eberron work so far, and would you consider running and streaming the Adventures League campaign for listeners? Okay, first part, we're about to get to that. Yep. Uh, second, that's a, that's a good question. Would we consider I, that? I don't think they would like us to stream Adventures League campaigns. Um, like, I just suspect that they probably want to leave that to the Adventures League, but uh, it is really tough to run and stream for an audience, and I don't want to do it. Yeah. Maybe um, non-Adventures League, Eberron Adventures, because those will be coming out because it's available for the DMs Guild now. Um, I don't know. It's something to consider. If I mean, at us, listeners, if that's something you're super interested in, maybe that's a Patreon thing. Yeah, we'll if you would tune into us streaming um, at us, and maybe we'll consider it. But I really, I just don't oh, think that oh, would be that wait, entertaining. Wait, Shane, I got an idea. Uh, we're part of DSPN now. And we have access to Rudy Basso. We'll make them do it. Yeah, we'll just have them do a DSPN Presents. Perfect. Yes. Speaking of joining Don't Split the Podcast Network, our show is now brought to you by Kobold Press. The Zobek Gazetteer is your guide to 5th edition adventure in this merchant city forged in the fires of revolt. Use it with the Midgard Worldbook or bring Zobek into your homebrew campaign setting. Uh, you know, uh, the Midgard world book, I think that's something we were looking at, right? Midgard or Southlands as a potential campaign setting to yeah, cover in the series. We have gotten a few requests to cover Midgard as a campaign setting episode. Yeah, at us. So within its pages, you will find Zobek's districts and locations, including the famed Arcane Collegium and the notorious Kobold Ghetto. You know, I would have called it the uh, Stettel. You'll also find guilds, gangs, and gods, along with NPCs to challenge or aid your players. And gold and gazebos and terrifying mimic gazebos and goblins probably goblins mimic goblins a new clockwork wizard school and new magic items including the bag of traps chronomancer's pocket clock and red lady scalpel uh, there are new character backgrounds mounts and racial feats for humans and gearforged Yep, and this is extra great because Eberron has just come out. There is a lot of renewed interest, and if you don't like the Warforge, the Gearforge will probably scratch that itch. There's also much more. Whether you're riding into the free city via its great northern road or creeping in through a smuggler's tunnel, Zobek awaits you. Head to koboldpress.com and pick up your copy today. Or check out the show notes. There is a link directly to it. Oh, there's totally a link. All right, back to the show. Uh, James Intracasso, have you heard of this person? Yeah, he's kind of in charge of this whole network thing. Oh, okay. Couple questions. How has the podcast changed the way you GM and play characters in RPGs? Um, simple. I do it more and I play more varieties because I I want to experience mechanics that I don't fully understand so that I grok them better. That's adorable. I am a better and nicer player because I am also thinking about what it's like to be running a game for the character that I'm playing. Because I'm now always thinking about that. And oh dear lord, am I a difficult player. James also asks, what did you think of the overall treatment of dragon marks as races and sub-races? Oh, we'll get to that. It's coming. Next up, the uh, last questions we got in before the deadline. Uh, cutting it close. These come from longtime listener Len. We uh, would have ignored these if they weren't from Len. <laughs> Probably true. 
All right, first one, uh, Eberron related. What are the most important things for players to keep in mind when making characters in the Eberron setting? You've been at war for 100 years. Yep. If you're not an elf, you do not remember what it was like to not be at war. Probably multiple generations of your family do not remember what it was like to not be at war. Exactly. And a combination of 9-11, the JFK assassination, and Hiroshima all just happened a couple of years ago, and nobody knows why. Question two, what are the most important things for DMs to know about running an Eberron game to do justice to the setting? Uh, not including the stuff we just said. <laughs> the stuff we just said. Yeah. <laughs> I would also add uh, magic is normal. It is normal. It is as normal as electricity is in you know the 1930s. Not every single person has access to it, but it is widespread, low level, relatively simple. Yep. And also keep in mind that alignment is nothing. Um, everyone is neutral in Eberron, uh, regardless of race or regular disposition. Like everyone is neutral or whatever their personal dis disposition is. Question three, if you were going to make pre-generated characters for a 5e Eberron one-shot and wanted to make them representative of the setting's flavor, what would you make? Uh, so I would definitely do like um, some sort of like Madani Inquisitive mm -hmm. um, from Sharn, a Karnath Necromancer, mm -hmm. a Thrain Inquisitor. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Uh, uh, or, or somebody, some cleric of the silver flame is probably what I would do. Um, and then, uh, who would represent seer? A warforged. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, at a warforged, uh, I might have uh, a half elf with a mark of storm because more than any other setting, Eberron has half elves who are uh, a true breeding race who consider themselves to be uh, natives of this continent. They are the Korovar. Um, they are not half elf or half human they are half elves and then the sixth was probably a shifter changeling or a uh, kalishtar yeah one of the specific eberron races mm -hmm. um fill in whatever gap is missing in your party question four do you have any eberron character concepts you've always wanted to see realized but have yet to see them in action at the table i have yet to play a changeling in an eberron game i've played a changeling i played an eberron game but never at the same time and i'm very excited to do that i would like to play a um someone with uh, multiple identities not like multiple cover ids multiple identities they turn into that person and they are that person whichever suits them for that day i would like to play somebody f from stormreach um oh, yeah. who witnessed the war from afar and dealt with its like secondary consequences but wasn't actually a part of the war in corvair final question for each host that's uh me and you Pick a topic that you are passionate about but don't normally talk about on the air and talk about it unapologetically for one minute. Do you have one, Shane? Or do you want me to go first? I mean, if you're ready to go first, you can go first. Who's timing? I've got it. Yeah? Ready? Go. I enjoy cooking. Uh, so I it chafes me a lot that uh, many people are doing this like blue apron, uh, HelloFresh kind of thing where you're getting your like meals partially delivered like a little sack like this is the amount of cilantro you need for one dish and here are the uh, exact measured uh, bits of meat that you're going to cook and here's you know three tablespoons of olive oil and I'm just like oh my god one this is so wasteful two this is so much packaging three what if I would like to adjust this recipe there is no way that I'm able to do that because I don't have any of the other ingredients apparently my fridge is supposed to be empty uh, what if I want to uh, add more olive oil what if I want to save some of this olive oil what do I do with like 1.5 tablespoons of olive oil. Do I need to put it in a mason jar? Why would I have a mason jar if I'm the kind of person who doesn't know how to cook any food on my own? So I am sitting here going, 
this is like $9 a meal, $6 a meal. Like on the one end, I'm either going to cook a meal that is much more expensive than that uh, or much cheaper. I am a HelloFresh customer, so eat it. Uh, I would not because you don't know how to cook. All right, ready, go. Dungeon World is garbage. I don't know why everybody is obsessed with it. This whole, like, rewarding you with XP for failing just creates this stupid slapstick comedy whereby in order to pursue the mechanics that are presented, you have to do things you're not good at. So in order to advance in the game, the game is encouraging you to fail, which means instead of doing my cool thing that I signed up to do as my character, I instead have to engage with this secondary system of, you know, rolling my lowest possible abilities um, and daring the GM to then, you know, threaten my character, kill me, whatever it is that, like, the outcome of these negative consequences will be in a Dungeon World game. The best game in the world to fix that is Blades in the Dark because they just made all of your XP based on doing the cool things that your character is supposed to be doing anyway and giving you XP at the end of the session if you do them. It's simple and brilliant, and it encourages you to do the things that make your character your character. It's a huge design flaw. Nobody fixed it in Apocalypse World. Any Powered by the Apocalypse game that ignores it is trash. Man, we should do this every episode. I know. We'd do three-minute episodes. <laughs> <We'll> just... <laughs> Intro, two rants, and we're done. I mean, we've been talking about how can we get on Twitch or YouTube. We could just rant. Right. That might actually really work. All right, Len. I'm glad you're a listener, and I'm glad we took your questions. And I'm sorry to everybody who really, really loves Powered by the Apocalypse games. They're fine. I'm not yucking your yums. I'm just saying it's bad design. I am not sorry for anyone who really loves Blue Apron or likes to get their meals (laughs) half delivered. (laughs) All right. And we're going to wrap it up with a lightning round. Uh, All questions from Mr. Matt Perotti. So, Ishan, these first three questions are for you. Let's get them in, uh, you know, short, pithy answers. Okay. One word, a phrase. All right. How do you feel about the return of Picard to Star Trek? Happy, but terrified. Who is your favorite Gaunt's ghost character? Ron. Duh. <laughs> Ron? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, you Ron. Mean, you mean Ron. Yeah, Ron. That's what I said. <laughs> you mean Ron Weasley? <laughs> no, he's the worst. He's terrible. He did nothing useful. All right. And who's your favorite Marvel character? Psylocke. For reasons at me all right shane if you had a world where people don't ride horses what's the animal that people are riding instead elephants how do you feel about the idea of the pleistocene park they're talking about constructing in the midwest uh life finds a way who is your favorite dc comics character this is (laughs) this is no longer a lightning round (laughs) it also shows that matt listens to the show Come on, I, come on, speed it up. I Let's don't know go. what answer pisses off Lightning, nerds. Shazam! Is that it? <laughs> Shazam? Is he a DC character? Yes, he is. I'll take it. Shaq is dope. <laughs> All right, both of us. What's your favorite D&D inspirational film? AKA, when you watch this movie, it sends your mind reeling in ideas you want to play. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Mm, less in terms of the plot, but more in terms of the characters. Like, there are 15 different D&D characters in Shawshank. Easily. Hmm. Shane, and you can't say Ocean's Eleven <laughs> unless you really need to say Ocean's Eleven. Then I'll take uh, I'll take Platoon. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ocean's Twelve. No, <laughs> I'll, I'll take Platoon. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Uh, Shane, what is your favorite extinct animal? Saber-toothed tiger. Ooh, yeah. Uh, uh, man, we just don't know it yet. Do you have a favorite die or dice? D twelve. You. 
Uh, I like, uh, so it would have been my game science dice, <laughs> but they rolled too true, and it turns out that's not actually fun. <laughs> you need the help. <laughs> I, yeah. So uh, so I have a set of, like, cheap uh, glittery pink dice that uh, I can always identify on the table, uh, which make it really easy. Adorable. Uh, what is your favorite barbecued food? Brisket. Get out. Hmm. Mine is uh, wheat gluten. It seems that you often run games in worlds or IPs that exist already. What is the elevator pitch for an original universe you've run something in, or one that you have loaded in the chamber, at least? Shane? <laughs> I like the idea of a uh, fantasy world that has just discovered a new continent that has appeared um, suddenly, um, and without warning and without explanation. Um, suddenly a new continent has appeared. Um, the existing nation doesn't know why or how or what's going on, uh, but also there are resources to exploit, and uh, um, for ease of colonialism there are no natives Ishan? i would like to play a DD game that uh takes place in the far future of the real world so people are still essentially spelunking uh not quite as far as numenera i only want things that would be recognizable from uh the real world all right last question what is your favorite weapon or tool from any world mythology Myth- so it has to be a mythological weapon or tool uh, or can it be a real one that is used in fantasy? That works too. I like saying atlatl. <laughs> okay, fair at enough. Atlatl. What do you do? <laughs> I hit them with my atlatl. <laughs> okay. Uh, if I'm a carpenter, I use my ads. <laughs> All right, you. Uh, I like big hammers. Uh, I always and you think, cannot lie. I always think it's really funny when uh, when you've got like everyone with like sword, sword and shield and whatnot, and the dude with a hammer just has two hands and he's swinging away, and you know he's going to get stabbed, but it's great. It's very John Henry. Mm-hmm. You're going to die with that hammer in your hands. Indeed. Yeah. Those other smithies can't deny. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, that is obviously the last ring of John Henry's hammer. He did complete that tunnel before that locomotive. Well, that means it's time to move on to our review of Wayfinder's Guide. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Zen's Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're all... What? You can also find us at TotalPartyThrill.com. Oh, Sorry. No, no, no. You should leave that in. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. You can also find us at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. Oh, get out. Just read the Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are not doing anything because we are instead talking about the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, which created the term creation forge which i guess means it sort of created the character creation forge in the first place yep so wayfinder's guide is a uh, 170 something page pdf that is available exclusively from the dm skills for 20 dollars, authored by none other than keith baker the creator of eberron also additional design from rudy rutenberg and some other people at wizards now one thing to keep in mind when deciding whether or not you're going to pay 20 dollars for this PDF is first, it is only available as a PDF. There's no hard copy as of yet. And second, it is considered to be uh, unearthed arcana material. You cannot use it in Adventurers League games. You can, of course, use it in your home game if you would like. All right. So 
Wayfinder's Guide basically gives you the history of Eberron from the perspective of Corvair, which is the primary continent with which contains the five nations who fought the last war for a hundred years um, and who endured the day of mourning. Yeah, let's make it clear. Like This is not a book that is an Eberron campaign setting book. There is a lot of that material in here. Um, but it is very much an addendum to the 5e rules where it tells you, okay, here's what the setting is, here are the things you need to know to play a character in it, and here are the particular rules that you need that are not located in 5th edition. So it starts off with uh, the first chapter is just what is Eberron? You know, it's a, a pulp adventure world where there's a lot of low-level magical technology, where magic is treated like technology. Uh, there is a lightning rail, and there are airships that fly, and uh, pretty much all of that technology is controlled by a guild system um, run by people who have uh, particular, essentially like magical tattoos that they're born with. Uh, We are two years after the end of a hundred-year-long war, so most people still really hate each other. And it is an old civilization where there is a lot of ancient magic and mystery to unearth. So from there, uh, it will go through an overview of each of the nations of Corvair, the Core 5, as well as all the surrounding nations like your Droams and your Lazar Principalities. You know, uh, you got your Shadow Marches, you got your Zalargos, you know, you will kind of want to like put them all together in a pot and stir them up. Like, there's I, usually like 12, maybe 13 of them, depends on like if you've had a cataclysm or not. Uh, I didn't actually realize this uh, until Keith himself pointed it out, but he actually wrote a lot about the Demon Wastes, which was just previously lightly covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this, like, it is rewritten. It is not republished. Um, it is it is a good summary of each of the nations, uh, and, and I personally, like, noticed that it's a good uh, consolidation of a lot of information that previously was in, like, three or four different books from 3rd edition. Yeah, when we were talking to Keith, uh, you know, I said, like, None of this struck me as like, oh my god, that's totally new, and like I've never seen that before. But a lot of it was, oh, I've never seen it like phrased that way. Like, but that makes sense, and I get that, and it's cool to see it here, all like very simply arranged. Um, like for example, when you have the section on on dare, you know, it, it talks about the kinds of fashion that people wear in on dare, and it's very glitzy, and you wear glamour weave, and it changes colors, and maybe appearance, and uh, people in seer also wear very nice clothing not quite as nice as on dare uh but it's also possible that they might just wear what's called morning wear which is really nicely cut fancy clothes but all in black like that makes perfect sense and uh, it did it show up in three five somewhere probably uh but it's just one of the like five things that you learn about seer where you go oh i get it that is evocative then the next chapter is going to cover the races of Eberron, so it, it provides mechanics for things like the Changeling, the Kalistar, the Warforged, um, Shifters, you know, the uh, the iconic races of Eberron. For the most part, um, these, I think, work really nicely. I'm so, so, so happy to see that Changelings get more than one language, common and two languages of your choice. Like, they didn't get that in 4th edition. How right. are you supposed to play a Changeling if you can only speak common? Right. <laughs> you are a, uh, a human. Yeah. Only ever a human, yes. I think all of the races in here had, what, plus two to one ability score, and then, well, they had, like, choices of ability scores, right? They weren't necessarily locked in. Um, The Kalistar uh, get to speak telepathically. They get to start with that. I'm so happy that we're getting, you know, more telepathic races um, rather than everyone having to dip Warlock, like, uh, Great Old One Warlock 1 just to be able to have some telepathy. 
we get four different types of shifters, which is wonderful, all with uh, slightly different ability scores and a different shifting feature. It's great. Uh, and then, what, three different types of Warforged? Uh, you can be a an envoy, a juggernaut, like you can start as a juggernaut, uh, and a skirmisher. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the way that the armor works, uh, like ch- changing on a long rest stays that way. Um, I think I've seen some community complaints that, you know, oh, Warforged or Transformers. Um, if you don't love it, let wizards know, because like we said, all of this is technically playtest material. Then the next chapter is going to cover dragon marks, uh, which are all of the um, like kind of corporate houses, effectively, uh, of Eberron. Um, each of them gives you basically a replacement for the race stat block or the sub-race stat block of the uh, races that are capable of keeping that mark. Right. So we should talk a little bit about like what design space these dragon marks actually occupy. Uh, there was in 3.5, this was a feat chain. You know, you take a feat and you have a, a least dragon mark. You take another feat, you have a lesser dragon mark, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. When we talked to Keith about that, that was not his preferred way of approaching it. Um, and, and even in third edition and then bringing it to fifth edition, he was like, yeah, that I don't want to do that. Yeah, it wouldn't work at all because only variant humans would be able to start with one. And then, you know, most characters don't even pick up a feat till like 8th or 12th level, Mm -hmm. you know? And like the conceit is that you're born with these things. Right. So instead, they are effectively sub-races. So instead of being a halfling who's like light foot or stout, you are a halfling who has the mark of hospitality or the mark of healing. And that replaces your sub-race. Now... Those of you uh, who know 5e mechanics very well know that the sub-races are not necessarily all the same uh, sizes between the races. Uh, some sub-races have a lot more material in them. Others have much less. Some races don't have sub-races. <laughs> yeah, I, particularly humans and half-orcs, both of which uh, need to be able to have dragon marks. Right. So those are actually just alternate versions of the human and the half-orc, uh, both of which are sort of combined into one house uh, of th- house Thrashk sub-race. Uh, so your, how, how do we phrase it with, with Keith? Your genotype is uh, mark of finding. Uh, your phenotype may be human or half-orc. Right. But like on the inside, you're essentially the same. Yep. Which leads to some weirdness between like, the level of strength between the different dragon marks. Mm-hmm. So obviously you get more stuff for being like house thrash because that is replacing the full human or half orc stat block. Whereas, you know, uh dragon mark for Tarasco, uh, a mark of healing uh, only replaces a couple abilities for the halfling. Right. And then like in between it's like um, mark of shadow for elves because their their sub races have uh, a bit more mechanical heft to them than the halfling sub races. Yeah, so it's kind of up and down. Uh, it's not my favorite thing on first reading. Uh, when we talked to Keith about it, he made a good point. Like they are a little underwhelming overall um, as dragon marks, but the value of the dragon mark is not necessarily the power it grants you. The power of the dragon mark is really in the connection to the house that wields it. Which kind of begs the question, like, why not just make these story elements mm-hmm. or, I guess, a background? I don't love the idea of having them as a background just because that doesn't really add anything mechanically. I mean, the features can't really do anything. Um, so maybe this is a pretty decent medium. Uh, I, I mean, I would prefer that 
in Eberron, you just get more stuff. Like if you have a dragon mark, just put that on top of the regular abilities that you already have. Like we did that in third edition. Eberron characters had action points. No other characters in other games had action points. In the Forgotten Realms, you didn't get them until like later you were like, oh, I like this Eberron mechanic. Like, great. Give me, you know, give me some action points. I like the idea. Like Eberron is supposed to be like this, this action-packed pulp noir uh like setting you know that's the kind of game you tend to play like we're gonna rob a lightning rail that's like traveling 60 miles an hour like through the uh through the waste near the mornland you know we'll probably land on it from an airship we should be like pretty competent yeah i I would have liked to have seen it as like take a bonus feat or take a dragon mark you know something like that yeah exactly but you know it is what it is so um play test it you know give wizards your feedback uh certainly um, don't want ours to be the sole opinion that they hear if they even listen. Then I'm sure they don't. Nope. Uh, I do, however, like the intuition dice. Uh, if you take a look at that, it's it's a kind of like getting a, a guidance on certain kinds of activities. An extra D4, uh, you can increase that um, with additional abilities like a D6 or D8. So then next you have uh, a section of magic items. They're mostly kind of low-level common magic items, the type of items that you would find wantonly in Eberron where magic is just technology, right? It is ever-present and more common. Um, So they're mostly small mechanical effects, but neat little flavor things. I would say finally. Uh, Like if you look at Xanathar's Guide at the common magic items, they're mostly silly. Those are terrible. Yeah. I I mean, you know, if it doesn't require a two-mint, sure, I'll keep one, whatever. Um, Many of these, though, they are simple enough that you'll use them at low levels and then maybe you'll discard them or upgrade them or something um, story-wise. I really like the mechanics of them. You know, if you have a wand made of um, Fernian ash, you know, Fernie as the plane of uh, fire, which is also kind of evil aligned, you do plus one fire damage if you're uh, using a fire spell with it. Is that going to break anything mechanically? Not at all. Uh, but it's very cool that you actually have some benefit to using low-level magic items. Right. Um, and then the last section is basically dedicated to an in-depth view of Sharn, the City of Towers, uh, which got its own book in 3rd edition. Um, Now it kind of walks you through what Sharn looks like, uh, gives you ideas for adventures, that sort of thing. Uh, You can also basically create your own adventures in Sharn by rolling on random tables. Um, This this puts together really cool adventures. I love those tables, and I think they should be standard for anybody who's creating an RPG setting because they force you to think of your setting in terms of a game that you would create and run using it. Not that Eberron needed the help, but um, it should just be an example for anybody designing a setting. All right, so the real question is, should you be buying this if you haven't already? And I would say, if if I was about to run the Morning Glory campaign now, I would buy this without a second thought, immediately. Yep. Um, there's no reason I wouldn't want to have this. Uh, this is all stuff I would need to make up on my own anyway. Yep. Uh, as a player in an Eberron game, it's more up to you, especially if your DM already owns it. Uh, and keep in mind, the races, I think, have already been released on Unearth Arcana. The Dragon Marks may very well be. And uh, and we do know that the Artificer is going to be released, which is the iconic class of Eberron. Uh, it will be released as Unearth Arcana and then added into the book. So whether you buy it now or you buy it after that point, um, the Artificer will eventually be available in there. 
Right. Um, yeah, your your download version will be updated. And then after the artificer's in there, then probably print on demand is available depending on sales. Although from what we've heard, sales have been pretty good. Yeah, and, and Keith did mention like he's not able to make updates to it right now, but once the playtest feedback has all been gathered, like he will be able to make refinements to it. So it's still a living document, but it's kind of a slowly living document. Right. I mean, it, I think it only gets better from here. If you like Eberron and you can afford the $20, it's a buy. Yeah, if you're even a little bit interested in Eberron, if anything we've said has sounded interesting, it's probably worth 20 bucks to uh, to check it out. And uh, another thing, in addition to this, is that Eberron is now available uh, for the DMs Guild. Like, you can make your Eberron adventures and your Eberron mechanics if you want and release them just like you could for Forgotten Realms. That's um, probably the thing we're the most excited about. Yeah, I'm already working on some stuff that I would like to publish. We sort of had some things in the hopper anyway because we were like, it's got to happen sometime, right? It's got to, it's got to. Right, exactly. Now we actually have to put pen to paper and like <laughs> make it work. Uh, and Keith did tell us about a few things that he is working on. Um, some magic items or, or magic in the world. Yep. And then also a planar source book. He was working on both of those. The magic one probably comes out first. Yep. I am very excited about that, more so than the planes. Um, I know he has said for years that he wanted to write a handbook on the planes. I'm so super hyped about the planes. I bet it's going to be really interesting. It's just not where uh, my focus in Eberron has been. But uh, Yeah, but you're the one who wants to bring back the Morning Glory campaign so you can like make sure that Cameron is dead dead and guess where you guys are going to go? Uh, to a sea that cannot be boiled. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such place. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think that's a double buy with... Very, very, very few reservations, huh? Oh, yeah. All right. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about using vehicles and ships. And in the character creation forge? We are building the Spell Slugger. Well, that's it for episode 158 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. You'll also find a new Clockwork Wizard School and new magic items, including the Bag of Traps. You know, Shane, why don't you just go eat a Bag of Traps? Okay, okay, looking at me with that face of yours, I, eat a Bag of Traps. I think we really need to read the whole line before you start interjecting. <laughs> we'll get there. The good folks at Cobalt Press paid for this line. <laughs> and they are getting their money's worth. A new Clockwork Wizard School and new magic items, including the Bag of Traps, Chronomancer's Pocket Clock, and Red Lady's Scalpel. Are you actually going to cut that part? Because I'll say it. Nope. You're not going to cut it. That's good. I'm going to do it exactly that way. Perfect. (laughs)